0: Well, good evening, and it's nice to be with you, whether you're here in the church, or joining us by Zoom. <clears throat> As Tony has mentioned, we're starting a short series on 2 Chronicles. Not necessarily the best known book in the Old Testament, but fascinating in its own way. First and Second Chronicles were originally a single book called Chronicles. It was actually the last book in the Jewish Old Testament because, for the simple reason, that it was the last book which was actually written. Chronicles covers roughly the same period of history, of Israel's history, as the books of Samuel and Kings. But Chronicles is very selective. It focuses only on the history of Judah, the southern kingdom after partition and it doesn't mention the northern kingdom of Israel. First Chronicles, if you look at the very first word, the very first word of the Chronicles, First Chronicles was Adam, which gives us a clue of where the author is beginning his narrative. And almost the last sentence of First Chronicles is this very significant statement. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father, David. Now remember that Adam had been created to govern and rule the earth. When Adam sinned, it seemed as though God's plan for that to happen had failed. But in some ways we can see First Chronicles as the story of how God still fulfilled his grand plan to have a man sit on the throne of the Lord on earth in the form of the son of David, Solomon. So why is that not the end of Chronicles with the son of David on the throne, on God's throne here on earth? Well, sadly, mankind's ability to govern is so flawed that without God's intervention, mankind could not fully achieve God's destiny for them. The story of 2 Chronicles is the sad story of the inevitable decline and fall of the house of David. It is a somewhat depressing plot. Judah often descended into idolatry. The kings in 2 Chronicles uh, often forgot that the throne that they sat on was the throne of the Lord. They lived as though it was their own throne. And the people ignored the responsibility to live as God's people here on earth. But this steady and somewhat depressing decline is interspersed with a number of glorious revivals in Second Chronicles, when God intervened to arrest the decline. He raised up a number of kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and they brought about something of a restoration of Judah. And it is these times of revival and how God brought them about which is going to be the subject of our short five-week series on 2 Chronicles. The first few chapters of 2 Chronicles focus on the building of the temple by Solomon. It's in some ways a strange place to start and to give so much uh, material to that. The temple is often called the house of the Lord. <laughs> Interestingly, 2 Chronicles ends with the destruction of that same temple by the Babylonians. But even that is not the final word. The very last verse of 2 Chronicles quotes the proclamation of King Cyrus, the Persian Empire, Emperor. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord, their God, be with them. Something close to that can be found in the British Museum with a Cylinder of Cyrus. The fact that 2 Chronicles begins and ends with the building of the temple suggests that we should look very carefully at the role of the temple throughout the book. What we will see over the next few weeks is that many of the good kings were characterized by how they restored the temple, and several of the bad kings who led Judah into idolatry are often characterized by how they Uh, mistreated or even just neglected the temple. So if 1 Chronicles is about the throne of the Lord, then we can think of 2 Chronicles as being about the house of the Lord. And there are two different things, two different ways through which the Lord governs the earth. And the, the story of the house of the Lord focuses on its role in bringing revival and restoration to Judah. Now, when Solomon uh, built the house of the Lord, he dedicated it to God. He gives a lengthy prayer of dedication, and that's recorded in chapter 6 of Second Chronicles. His prayer reveals the central purpose of the house of God in the middle of a corrupt and idolatrous world. Let's read a number of the verses together, and uh, it's going to be a slightly lengthy reading. But we'll read from verse twenty-two of Second Chronicles, chapter six, up to verse thirty-nine. And what I want you to notice is that this is this—the heart of Solomon's prayer—is a sequence of seven scenarios in which Judah would need to come back to the Lord. So we'll. We'll try to notice that as we go through. And the first scenario starts in verse twenty two. Solomon is praying to the Lord, when anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and swear the oath before your altar of this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on their heads what they have done, and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. Then the second scenario. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave them and their ancestors. Then the third scenario. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave your people for an inheritance. Then the fourth scenario. When famine or plague comes on the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of their afflictions and pains, and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive. And deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know the human heart, so that they will fear you and walk in obedience to you all the time that they live in the land that you gave our ancestors. Then number five. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this temple then hear from heaven your dwelling place do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people israel and may know that this house that i have built bears your name number six when your people go to war against their enemies wherever you send them And when they pray to you towards the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And the seventh and final one in verse 36. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray towards the land that you gave their ancestors, towards the city you have chosen and towards the temple that I have built for your name, Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, there are several fairly clear and obvious lessons from reading these seven different scenarios and Solomon's prayer in each case. First of all, the purpose of the temple. It was to be a house, prayer. And the focus in this book is not so much on the temple as a place for sin offerings. It wasn't even the place where God lived. It says that God lives in heaven. It was not a political center where the king sat. The house of God was primarily a house of prayer. That is the focus in all these scenarios. Secondly, The sort of prayers which God firstly invites are prayers of repentance and prayers for forgiveness because people have sinned. When God's people backslid, as we we describe it, and turned away from God and got into trouble as a result, the temple was a visible testimony from God that God will forgive sinners who truly repent, whether they're believers, or unbelievers. And the third clear lesson is that the prayers which God invited were also prayers for healing and restoration. God wants to fix the damage which sin does in people's lives. He wants to bring healing and restoration. But that can only come after a prayer of genuine repentance when we come back to the Lord by confessing our sin and asking for God's forgiveness. Then we can pray the next stage of God's loving plan, his plan to bring healing and restoration. Now, because of the shortage of time, in the rest of our time this evening, I'd like to touch on two things. I'm not going to go through all seven scenarios that Solomon refers to. I'm just going to select two, you'll be relieved to hear. But there are two where we have historical case studies later in the Old Testament where these verses applied in minute detail and where they were followed by God's servants. Secondly, I'll just make a few comments on how the New Testament tells us to apply the lessons, even though there is no temple of the Lord on earth, no physical building, there's something much more important than that which the New Testament talks about. So, The first scenario I've selected is scenario number three, which started with these words, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned. Now, can you think of a time in Israel's history after this when the people needed really to listen to this? Now, I don't have any prizes with me, and it probably wouldn't deserve a very major prize, uh, to identify the time in Israel's history where we see this scenario lived out before our eyes. I'm sure you're already thinking of Elijah. Good, yes, Elijah. And particularly the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, Jezebel's prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. At that time, the northern kingdom had broken away from the southern kingdom of Israel, and they had sadly departed from the truth of Scripture their theologians had to develop developed their own you might call interpretation of the writings of Moses their motivation for developing this their, their own slant and their own distorted view of Scripture was primarily political the northern kings wanted to draw the people's loyalty away from the southern kingdom where the temple was in Jerusalem and so they had to replace that with their own temple. Not the, one, the house of God, but with their own temple, which was built at Bethel, very cleverly, because Bethel means the house of God. At this temple, there was an image of a calf. And people were encouraged to worship at this calf, not because the calf itself was a god, but it was like a, physical, a, a, a visible, physical representation of whatever concept of God you wanted to have. So they had moved away from the absolute truth to uh, being able to mold your own view of God. And once Israel had taken that step away from absolute objective truth about the God of the Scriptures, it was only a small step to embracing the worship of the imaginary gods, the false gods of the nations round about. At the time of Elijah, Jezebel, who was from Tyre and Sidon, Jezebel was trying to establish the worship of Baal as the state religion. There were a few thousand faithful believers at that time who were under intense threats of persecution. Most of them were in hiding because of that. Now, we shouldn't criticize them too much, um, without having been in that same situation. It must have been very hard for young people in those days, particularly, to resist the pressure from their friends and peers, the intense pressure to conform to the ideologies, the new ideologies which Jezebel had brought in. They would have been ridiculed as intolerant fundamentalists. Only Elijah was prepared Publicly to stand up and confront the ideology enforced by Jezebel. And Elijah's strategy is based almost entirely on the scenario three from 2 Chronicles chapter six. First, Elijah called upon God to discipline the people of Israel by bringing about climate change. There was a drought for three and a half years, no rain, It uh, it led to devastating consequences and poverty. But even that was not enough to bring the people of God uh, to their senses. And so Elijah's next step was to have a contest which would force the people to decide which God they should worship. And it's interesting the touchstone of who is the real God. It's not who can zap the most enemies, It's not who has the greatest demonstration of power. It's the God who answers prayer. That is the real God. So Elijah said, the prophets of Baal, you have your opportunity. You pray to your God for fire to come down from heaven. And if their prayers were answered, then the people would be entitled to accept that Baal was a real God. But if that failed, then Elijah would pray to the God of the Bible, the God whose temple was in Jerusalem. Now, that was politically very controversial. And if God, the God of the Bible, answered by fire, then the people would have to accept that the God of the Bible is the living God. And if you remember the story, you'll know that Elijah did something very bold. When it was time for him to pray, he waited. He waited until it was nearly evening. It's it's as though he was looking at his watch for the right time. And he was waiting quite explicitly for the time when the evening sacrifice would be offered at the temple in Jerusalem. That was a big statement. He's saying, I am synchronizing my prayer with the prayers at the temple of Jerusalem. And just as Solomon's prayer had said, the people in that situation, when they look to the temple and pray, God will hear their prayer. And so Elijah followed the details of Solomon's prayer in considerable detail. And as you no doubt know, God did answer prayer by sending down fire And the people shouted, perhaps rather reluctantly, but they had to admit it, that the God of the Bible is the true God. Now perhaps there have been times in your life, even as as a Christian, when you've doubted or wondered whether or not the God you have been taught about really exists. Maybe like me, you were brought along to church and to Sunday school from the age of three You learn verses, you heard the gospel uh, week after week. But perhaps the thought has come to your mind, have I just been brainwashed? Do I just believe what I believe because I was told it so often at such an impressionable age when I didn't have sort of the independent judgment to weigh it up? And perhaps you now feel intense peer pressure to accept the ideologies of the world around you, particularly about evolution and gender issues. You feel uncomfortable being such a minority. It would be so much easier to go with the flow and accept what everyone else accepts. But the crucial issue is this. Is the Bible true? Does the God of the Bible really exist? Now, there are many helpful uh, approaches to looking at that question and to answering it. Uh, But one of the most convincing pieces of evidence that will speak to your heart is when your own prayers are answered. I don't know whether you can look back to a time when you prayed for something quite specific and then you received the prayer. Not everyone can, has experienced uh, times like that. But before a person walks away from the beliefs that they were taught about the God of the Bible, give God the opportunity to show you that he answers prayer. And not just some strange prayer that uh, a pink elephant will appear in your window at 7.28 tomorrow morning. Elijah prayed what was already in Scripture. So find something in the Bible which God has said he wants for you, and pray for that in full sincerity, not arrogantly, not cynically doubting, but genuinely being prepared to give God a chance to be true to his word. And then wait and see what happens. Pray for something particularly that these tempting ideologies of the world can't give you. Evolution can sometimes sound plausible, but it cannot give you a sense of purpose in life. It tells you that you are an accident. It tells you that your life has no significance. If that's the pressure you feel, then pray to God that if he's there, that he would lead you, to discovering a real purpose for your life, a real purpose for your existence. Or if you feel that it's unreasonable to accept what the Bible teaches about gender, what it teaches about living a moral life, then pray that God would bring you to a real understanding of why God's truth makes so much more sense of life here, so much more sense for the goodness and health of the human race than uh, the increasingly complicated theories about gender categories. And if your search is genuine, even though you may have doubts, then you are entitled to accept the outcome. So that's the first scenario that I've selected. The second scenario is number seven, the last one. And here's what it, it talks here about when God's people have gone so far away from him that they are taken into exile in a foreign country. And Solomon foresees a time when God's people would be exiled because of their sin. And he says that if they recognize their sin and repent, they should pray, notice what it says, towards firstly the land of Israel, then towards the city of Jerusalem, and lastly towards the temple now. What time in history does that remind you of? Is there anybody whose name comes to mind who was in just this situation? Again, I'm afraid I don't have any Mars bars to dish out, but I imagine that a number of you are thinking of, for example, the book of Daniel and the person of Daniel, where Daniel and indeed all of Judah or most of Judah, had been taken into exile to the land of Babylon. And in the second half of the book of Daniel, we see Daniel taking very literally the instructions of Solomon's scenario seven and following it through in detail. This scenario that we read convinced Daniel that the secret to restoration of Israel lies in prayer not in political agitation, not in military revolt. Daniel is famous for being a man of prayer. He understood that his struggle against the powerful ideologies of Babylon and Persia were fought uh, not in the newspapers, not on the streets, but in the spiritual realm by prayer. And the real enemies of God's people have always been the principalities and powers in heavenly realms. Indeed, Daniel's prayers were so effective that the powers of evil tried to stop him praying. That's why he ended up in the den of lions. A law was passed which banned prayer for 30 days, not permanently, but for one month. It wasn't just prayer meetings that were banned, but even individual prayers too. Now, how would you have responded to a law like that? Would it have made much difference to you if you were honest? Some Christians seem to go through more than 30 days without praying, and it doesn't seem to cause them much distress. Or would you have said, Well, it's only 30 days. God understands, and when the 30 days are over, I'll make up for it by praying twice as much for the next month. Or would you have organized public days of prayer in defiance of the law? Well, notice how Daniel responded, and I'm relying here on your memory of the story. He did not attend prayer meetings, as far as we know. He did not organize public protests. But he did continue to follow the instructions of Scripture about his own personal prayer life. And in particular, he followed the uh, details of Scenario 7 in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. In chapter 6 of his own book of Daniel, that's the story of Daniel being thrown into the den of lions. And chapter 9 then later is Daniel's great prayer of confession on behalf of Israel. So if you like, chapter 6 tells us um, about how Daniel prayed and chapter 9 tells us about what he prayed for. And in chapter 6, the detail they were given is that Daniel opened his windows towards Jerusalem. Exactly as stipulated in scenario 7 of Solomon's prayer. That was how he prayed, fulfilling the detail of scripture. Then in chapter 9, Daniel again follows carefully the instructions of the scenario. He confesses the sins of Israel and on behalf of the nation, as it were, he repents and prays for forgiveness and restoration. And as a result of Daniel's prayers, <clears throat> the emperor of Persia, King Cyrus, was moved to authorize the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, exactly as described in the last verse of Second Chronicles. <clears throat> so in the cases of both Elijah and Daniel, it was their prayers which influenced world events, and which shook (coughs) and undermined the pervading ideologies of the day. We do well to remember that, particularly now when we come in the last few moments to ponder how these Old Testament scriptures apply today in light of the New Testament. So let me just end by briefly mentioning two of the New Testament's direct applications of this part of Chronicles, particularly the two scenarios we have already considered. One application will be our prayers for restoring society, the world around us, as Daniel did. And second, it will be our prayers for restoring individuals, uh, backsliders, thinking about Elijah. It was the Lord Jesus who reminded Israel that the temple was originally meant to be a house of prayer. He did that when he threw out the money changers. So the Lord brought even Israel's temple back to its original purpose. The disciples even followed that pattern. You remember in Acts 3, I think it is, Peter and John went to the temple to pray. So they had been brought back to that understanding by the Lord Jesus himself. But what would happen... For the believers, then, when that temple was destroyed, as it was in AD seventy by the Romans, how would people pray? Well, the New Testament shows that there's something much greater than the temple. When Paul writes to Timothy, this is how he describes the function of the church. In First Timothy chapter three, he says, "The house of God is now now is the church." of the living God. So the counterpart now of that house of God of the temple is the church. And in that letter in the previous chapter, Paul has a particular message for the men of the church. He says, I want you men to lift up holy hands in prayer. If if we see our society going to the dogs, I think you'll find there's quite a close correlation between uh, how steadily our society is declining and the number of men who are actively involved in prayer in the church. And at the start of that same chapter, he tells us what we should be praying for. He says we should be praying for kings, for rulers, and for all those in authority. This is a primary way in which we can influence and restore proper human society. We should pray for those who make the laws and pray for those who implement and carry out and apply the laws. The laws The Lord wants to see good government and a healthy, peaceful, godly society. We should be praying as a church that those who make the laws will not be unduly influenced by the false ideologies which from time to time seem to capture the nation's heart. We should also pray for the police and for the judiciary and for the civil service. We should pray that they will carry out the laws and not a false understanding of the actual laws. Christians should not ask for any special favors in society. But we should pray that the servants of government will not be intimidated by pressure from those who agitate in favor of one ideology or another. And we're told to fight this battle through prayer. That is how we will see some restoration of truth and peace in our society. Finally, when it comes to the restoration of individual believers, perhaps friends or relatives, who are maybe at the point of walking away from all they were taught. The letter of James is very relevant here, particularly the end of the last chapter. What should you do if a Christian friend or relative backslides? James, first of all, addresses the backslider and says they should be prepared, if necessary, to seek help to consult the elders, to seek help from them. Now, if someone's not prepared to do that, then they are not genuinely seeking for the truth. Then he encourages us, the rest of us, to intercede for people like that who have gone away from the Lord. James, in this, stresses the importance of prayer. And he also refers to the example of Elijah, just as we have done. And this is how James ends his letter. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I pray that over this series in Second Chronicles that we'll be motivated to be involved in the spiritual struggle to bring restoration and revival to our friends, to our own personal Christian walk, to our families, and to our society. Let's just by a moment's prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who wants to answer prayer. That wherever on this world there is a human heart that genuinely calls out to you, even they may not know you personally, we thank you for your assurance that you will hear that prayer and will answer the cry from a human heart, from a humble heart. Father, we pray especially for ourselves, that should we ever be tempted to go astray, that we will get back to the basics, that we will turn to you in repentance and be restored. We think, too, of our friends and relatives who perhaps once were involved in church but now seem far away. But we know that no one is beyond your reach. We pray that you would work with them, and perhaps even in the frustrations of their chosen lifestyle, that they would become aware of their need and would once again be encouraged to turn their face towards your holy living place in heaven and turn to you. Help us to be faithful in this matter. In Jesus' name, amen.